You must have a taller pastor because this stand is a bit too tall for me. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Zhang. I'm one of the pastors at New City Presbyterian Church, one of your sister's church, one sister churches in Norwood. It's been a while since I've been up here with you all, Living Hope. Congratulations on your new building. Last time I was here, I was still at the uh, school cafetorium, so this is a major upgrade. And um, I actually grew up in, I went to middle school in Fairfield, and I was born in China. And my first summer in America, I actually studied English just down the street here in Hamilton. So it's been a while since I came back to this side of the river here in Hamilton. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm also glad that uh, Chet is able to take a sabbaticals, get the summer away from this church. They, you know, thank you for caring for my friends this way. There are many milestones for a church. You know, it's the first church service, the first elders, it's particularization, it's the independence. And I think the pastor going on his first sabbatical is also a major milestone. So congratulations. But unfortunately, that also means you're stuck with me this morning. So <laughs> you win some, you lose some. All right, well, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 33. And um, I'll be reading the whole psalm. Psalm 33, that's a psalm after Psalm 32. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded and stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. It's the word of the Lord. Well, you may have noticed, unlike a lot of the other psalms, Psalm 33, is a psalm without title. 
No indication on who wrote it, or what occasion was it written, or what kind of prayer it is. So I'd like to suggest that we call Psalm 33 the dating psalm. The dating psalm. Now why? Well, see, when you're dating, you spend a lot of time getting to know the other person, what he or she is like, personality, character traits, temperament. And you also spend a lot of time getting to know yourself. What are you looking for? Whether you like or trust this person or not. Whether your relationship with him or her is good enough. At the end, if everything goes well, if you're a man, you pop the question, right? You ask the lady to marry you. That's usually how it goes. Well, Psalm 33 has 22 verses. The, psalm addresses, the psalmist addresses his own soul and exalts his people. He takes an inventory of God's attributes. He examines his own relationship with God. And in the last verse, the only time he directly addresses God, he pops the question. He asks, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Now imagine if you get a chance to have a better knowledge of God, you reflect on his power as your judge, your creator, as your ruler. What will you think of him? Would he appear too strict, too authoritarian, too angry, too scary to you? Would you ask him to remain with you forever? And this psalm tells us the answer should be yes. And today I would like to look at this psalm backward to explore how we can relate to God like this person who wrote the psalm. So let's look at it backward. Let's start from the end. The first, the psalm ends in a place of deep trust. The psalmist trusts the Lord. This is a trust that is very personal to him and his people. The last three verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Now notice how many times he uses the word our. Our soul waits. Our heart is glad in him. He is our help and our shield. God is personal to them. He has experienced God personally. He will wait for the Lord. Nothing else will meet his desire. When you shop for a car or a phone or even pasta sauce, you rarely buy the first things you touch, right? You look through all the options and you wait for the one that will meet all your needs. The psalmist has examined all the options and declares that God is worth the wait because God is what he ultimately needs. And look at all the things he rejects along the way. Verse 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now when things are bad, it makes sense for a king to trust in his armies. Right? Because at the end of the day, military power is what makes a king great. Look at what Putin trusts in right now in Russia. It makes sense for a warrior to trust in his strength because his strength is what makes him a great warrior. 
It makes sense to depend on the great might of a warhorse because it's the horse's great might that makes it dependable. But what makes sense for us to trust in may not be what ultimately saves. And that's why the psalmist chooses to wait. Of course, these are just some examples of the things that we trust in. We can easily make our own list, right? We, it makes sense for the great scholars to trust in his scholarship. It makes sense for the wealthy to trust in their money. It makes sense for a celebrity to trust in whatever that makes him famous. But what makes sense for us to trust in may not be what ultimately saves. That's why many of us are still waiting for the next big thing. And trusting in these things is not natural. It makes sense, but it's not natural. In other words, these trusts have to be cultivated. We are trained to trust them. Now, a great king's kingdom is not built in one day. No one is born a warrior. A horse has to be trained. We cultivate these things we trust in, and we grow in our dependence on them. Recently, I was watching one of my favorite films, The Devil Rares Prada. You guys seen it? came out like 17 years ago, so it's kind of old. But it follows a young, wide-eyed, idealistic journalist named Andy, played by Anne Hathaway. And she moved to New York City hoping to become some you know, famous journalist, and she landed a job as the personal assistant to the chief editor of a powerful fashion magazine. And Andy hated her job. But she didn't care about fashion. It wasn't real journalism. She constantly made fun of the models and fashion designers. But she wanted to prove that she could do the job. So she started to dress more fashionably. You know, she started to mix with the people that she didn't like. Then she start, decided to go get ahead by putting other people down. She grew to depend on the things to help her career. And she slowly drifts into being someone she used to hate. And at every turn, she kept repeating, I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. And at every turn, people around her would say, You chose. You chose. You, know, you don't sell your soul to the devil in one day or in one bet. You may not even like the things that you trust in. But with enough time and effort, you may begin to trust in these things that you used to hate. When I first saw this movie, I was working in a law firm in D.C. And I hated my job as a corporate law firm. I didn't care about law. I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't like the hours. I didn't see a whole lot of purpose in making wealthy people wealthier. But after three years in that firm, I thought it was a big deal because I made it through. And when it was time for me to train my replacement, I would tell myself, this guy can't do what I did. He's not good enough. He doesn't have what it takes to work for these people. And those of you who have gone through a hard job or a medical residency or even any type of hazing may understand this feeling. You, know, you are somebody now because you have made it. Now let me be clear. It's not wrong to excel in something. It's not wrong to be good at your job. But just because you're good at it doesn't mean that it will save you. 
And how do we avoid falling to this trap? And look at the psalm. The psalm says he waits for the Lord. Lord, the God, God is ultimately what he trusts in. Not armies, not strength, not horses, but God himself. He knows in his soul, the deepest part of his being, in his bones, that God is what would deliver him from death and keep him alive in famine. He waits for the Lord with hope. God is his joy and happiness. God is his protection, love, and hope. There's firmness in this conviction. How do we trust God like that? How do we get what the psalmist has? We have to know God's power. And he is so far beyond what you could ever do in your life. This psalm describes, describes God's power in three different areas. God's power as the ruler. God's power as the creator. God's power as the judge. So first, God's power as a ruler. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the, counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Now these verses contrast for us how our plans stack up against God's plans. The counsel of the nations come to nothing. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Our plans are frustrated. His plans are established for generations. Now what's the difference between our plans and God's plans? Power. He has the power to frustrate our plans and establish His. Imagine it's Friday afternoon. And you're looking forward to the weekend, sleeping in late, doing some reading in the morning with a cup of coffee, hang out with your kids in the afternoon, nice date night with your spouse, Saturday night. Come to church and listen to some great preacher like Chad. And then your phone rings. It's your boss. And he says you have to come work, come work overtime tomorrow and this weekend. What do you end up doing? You work overtime on the weekend. What's the difference between your plan and your boss's plan? Power. He has the power to make you come to work. God rules not only our individual plans, He has power over all human plans. He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of three people. And yet God is personal. He knows you and sees everything you do. Verses 13 to 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them and observes all their deeds. He rules over you and he knows you all personally. There's a story in the Gospel of John where the disciple Nathaniel meets Jesus for the first time. Nathaniel was a skeptical of Jesus, a bit skeptical of Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But when he meets Jesus, Jesus immediately knows who he is. And Jesus says, said, real Israelites indeed. Nathaniel was amazed. How do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Now we don't know what happened under that fig tree, but it's private enough 
Then Nathanael did not think anyone would know about it. But Jesus was there. So immediately Nathanael responds, Rabbi, you're the son of God. Imagine moments when you felt most alone. Whether you're feeling sad or left out or helpless, you thought you were all alone. But God was there all along. He knows you. And do you know how well God knows you? The psalm says not only God knows your heart in those moments, He created your heart. And that comes to the second power the psalm names. God's power as the creator. Verses 6, 7, and 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps into storehouses. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God not only created the world, he created with ease. I have trouble telling my son what to do, but God spoke and the world was made. He could easily bottle up all the waters of the sea just like you and I fill up a jar. It was effortless. Now, I know it's hard for us to understand God's power as a creator because we live in the Midwest. You know, we don't have mountains, we don't have oceans, we can't see the stars. But you know what we have? You may remember these things from a couple of summers ago. I think they're called cicadas. Remember those? They live underground like little bugs for like 17 years and they like drink from the tree, use like a little straw. And somehow deep underground, they know 17 years have gone by and they all emerge at the same time to mate. It's like the world's largest group date. And the males make these noise to attract the females. They all sing in unison. It was deafening. If you stand next to a tree long enough, you may have noticed that their noise is not just one continuous buzz. It comes in waves, like oceans on the beach. Now that may sound like a pretty gross example, but I'm sure you have all experienced the wonders of God's creation. We've all had breath taken away by something beautiful. One theologian wrote, There's no spot in the universe in which you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. Though even in cicadas, we can see the wonderful power of God's creation. And lastly, the Psalms talks about God's power as the judge. Verses 4 to 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loved righteousness and justice, The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. There's a sense of justice that's inescapable in human society. It may be twisted, like lots of our public policies, but even corrupt politicians still have a sense of right and wrong. There's a division of right and wrong in every human heart. And more than just in our hearts, we want someone powerful on our side. No, every time someone was driving recklessly on the road, I immediately wished there was a traffic cop right there to catch them. We want bad people to be caught. We want justice to be restored, even though people don't agree what justice means or looks like. We want aggressors to be punished. All of that reflects our desires for a perfect judge 
someone who sees it all and knows it all. In our own experience, we all sense God's power as the ruler, right? The creator, the judge. We see his sovereignty in how he orchestrates the details of history. We see the wonders of nature. And we see our desire for justice. The Dutch theologian says, humans in the course of a normal development arrive at a certain knowledge of God without compulsion or effort. It's almost natural that we arrive at some sense of the divine. But really get to know God by reading his word. Again, a theologian writes, Scripture speaks not in the language of logic, but in the language of witness. Not appealing to, our, to the reasoning intellect, but to the human heart and conscience, to the entire rational and moral consciousness of humans, it is never without power and influence. In other words, Scripture teaches in a clearer way something we already resonate with in our minds. The Bible describes God's power as the creator in Genesis. He frustrates the evil plans of Joseph's brother and brought Joseph to glory, thereby saving the lives of many people. He exacts justice and vengeance on Egyptians in Exodus. He punishes the sins of the Israelites and judges in King Saul and King David. Each page of the Bible bears witness to God's power. So back to our original question. Will you welcome this type of power in your life? Because when you consider God's power as a ruler, creator, and judge, it may frighten you. Especially God as a ruler and judge. But God goes further than just telling us about his power in Scripture. He became even more personal than that. The beginning of Hebrews says, Long ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And you know what true power of God looks like? It looks like this. On the cross, God frustrates the plan of evil men by using the unjust crucifixion of his son to fulfill the purpose to save his people. On the cross, the creator brings forth his kingdom even through death. And he raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruit of the new creation. Now on the cross, the judge placed all the punishment that we deserve on the shoulder of Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is given to us for free so that we can stand as innocent and righteous before God. The Apostle Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If the psalmist sees the power of God from Scripture and wants God to be near him, how much more so for us? When we see how God has used his power to save us from the cross, on the cross, you would expect God would use his power to make you miserable. But Tim Keller says, you really believe that all along, and in the gospel, you look into the heart of God expecting to see the frown of an enemy. And instead, you see the tears and the smile of a friend. So then how do we connect with a God like that? We come back to the psalm. And the psalm says, we praise. 
we praise. Verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. When we know God's power as the judge, creator, and ruler, we respond in praise. Now notice the psalm says, praise befits the upright. It is fitting for the upright to praise God. You know, if I'm declared upright, if I'm pronounced righteous, I want you to praise me. But no, it's the duty of the upright to praise God. We are Presbyterians, and Presbyterians use this thing called Westminster Confession. You read it earlier to guide our worship and our beliefs. And this is what it says at the beginning of the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of life? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Praise is the proper way to relate to God. And the psalm teaches how to praise. Verses 2 to 3. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That means praises have to be heard. It's loud and noticeable. People can tell when you're praising God. Not only here at church on Sundays, but privately at home every day as well. It also means praise is beautiful. With melody, with instruments, with skills. If your excuse is that you can't sing, then go practice. Take some lessons. Sing in your showers. Because God deserves our best effort. Or find some other creative ways to praise Him. Make art, write poetry. Now, sometimes we may think that we have done our part if we just listen to some worship songs. But that just makes us passive consumers. We need to sing along. Praise has to come from us. Keep a few songbooks and hymnals in your home and use them frequently. And lastly, praise takes time. It takes time to reflect on God's power and respond in praise. And here's the thing, if it's all possible, do not do devotions on your phones. Do not do devotions on your phones. And I know what it's like. It's convenient, right? You read a passage on your phone, you just pull it up, the app's right there, and then ding! All of a sudden, now you're on Facebook. Or you're responding to an email or texting with a friend. You don't stay in a Grand Canyon, and the next moment you're back in your office working. You don't sit through a Beethoven symphony in a symphony hall, and then the next suddenly you're looking at someone's broken toe. Power and beauty have to be processed. You listen, and then you reflect, and you applaud, and you praise. It transforms you, and it takes time. And God deserves your time. Now, immediately, you may think of two objections to praise. Now, we're Presbyterians. We don't want to act like a religious nut. When I was in seminary, that's a grad school for pastors, there was a student who was in her, I guess, 50s. And everywhere she goes, she would be like singing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And everywhere, you could see, like, you hear her coming from like far away. And one day I was walking down the hall and I could hear her coming up the steps. And she saw me and she said, are you praising Jesus? And I thought, 
What a weirdo. <laughs> no, I'm here to study theology. I'm thinking about life's biggest questions. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm not going to walk around and sing. You know what? There's nothing more sophisticated than knowing God's power in your heart and it comes out in praise. Have you ever felt that you know the right doctrines, but you just don't feel it? It's in your mind, but not in your heart. How do we make it true to our hearts as well? We praise. We take what we know in our minds and we process in our hearts and it comes back out in praise. You know, we don't fully know God until we praise Him. Paul writes in Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, this is not just some practical suggestions. Paul is describing singing and praising or how the, word of God, how the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. If we don't know how to praise Him on good days, we won't know how to praise Him in bad days. Praise is a habit. If we don't praise God when we're healthy, we won't praise Him when we start to have cancer. If we don't thank Him for what we have, we're not likely to start when it's always taken away from us. If we don't praise Him when we're free, we won't praise Him like Paul and Silas in prison. And here's maybe another objection. Perhaps from some of your non-believing friends. Isn't this just circular reasoning? We praise God, therefore we know and trust Him. We know and trust Him, therefore we praise God more. It's just like we're fooling ourselves. More to that I say, yes, it is circular reasoning. But so is everything else. The king praises a great army, therefore he trusts his army. The warrior boasts in his strength like Goliath, therefore he trusts in his strength to defeat his enemies. We boast in science and technology. We put up billboards around the city, therefore in science lives hope. All worship is circular reasoning. The question is, could the thing you boast in deliver you from death? Did it ever come down from heaven to dwell with you? Did it ever go to the cross to die for you? Did it ever rise from the dead to give you hope of resurrection? Because that's what my God did for me, and I will praise Him. So this morning, we've been looking at Psalm 33 backward to explore how we can relate to God like the person who wrote the psalm. So finally, let me flip it back, and here's what it teaches us. Praise God because He's the powerful creator, ruler, and judge. And He deploys His power to be your Savior. As you praise Him, you will know and trust in Him even more. And His steadfast love will be upon you as you hope in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You that You reveal to us about Your power in your creation, everything we see in the sunshine today and also in the events in our lives. But we thank you for your word, how you reveals about your power in the words that you've given us. We can read about you, we can learn about you, and also in your son, how he came to us to show us who you are. He is the word. 
that came and died for us. Show us your love and your steadfast love toward us. So we pray that you will let these things sink into our hearts as we reflect upon them every day and turn it back into praise you. That every day we live, we trust in you and wait upon you and praise you with our lives. Pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.